Big Sky, Big Potential. In association with Mills and Reeve, this is Eastern Promise. Achieving more together. Welcome to episode 88 of the Eastern Promise podcast, and thank you for joining me. I'm Mike Rigby, and this week, in preparation for Eastern Promise's Food Science Summit, we're journeying to the cutting edge of veg. Fisher Farms, on the Norwich Food Enterprise Park, is a vertical farm where factory-style precision meets agriculture. It's also a commercial business with a social purpose. And as someone who loves a good salad, I couldn't wait to find out more. I talked to founding director Tristan Fisher about how and why Fisher Farms came to Norwich and how vertical farming can be central to our food security and resilience. And finally, let's meander together down your favourite fairways as you share your top historic streets in the east of England. Yes, it's a pavement-pounding crowd sorcery. Controlled environment agriculture, more commonly known as vertical farming, is a means of bringing factory-style precision to agriculture. It's a system whereby food is produced in controlled indoor environments. Instead of soil and sunlight, innovative lighting and nutrient delivery technologies are used instead, and plants are grown in a suitable medium specially prepared. This greatly reduces the environmental impact and allows plants that would be unsuited to the UK's climate to be grown here nonetheless. At a stroke, the need to import salad vegetables such as basil, grown in Kenya, say, is slashed, de-risking the UK's exposure to global supply chains, which are increasingly vulnerable to hostile action. In preparation for the Eastern Promise Food Science Summit next month, I wanted to know more about the philosophy behind Fisher Farms. And founder, Tristan Fisher, did not disappoint. I have two great passions, history and science. So, you know, I read two to three books a week and I get up really early before everybody else does and I read and I am a voracious reader probably about two-thirds history and about one-third, which is things to do with science and engineering. And the reason why I do this is because I'm fascinated by how if you can understand historical trends, it gives you a much better understanding of where we are today. And if you understand today in the context of where we are coming from, it gives you a much better ability to actually predict the future. Yes. And so the analogy I have is that if you are here in the present and you're trying to figure out the future, and you're, you can do a standing jump, and you go, and you can get about this distance into the future by just understanding the present. But if you understand the past, essentially what you're doing is you're doing a long jump, where you yeah. can run from the past, jump at the present, and then land much, much further in the future 
by having a really good understanding of the past. But by having a good understanding of science and engineering and understanding how science and engineering created new platforms in the past, it allows you to look at how new platforms today could create a future for tomorrow. And so there's this science effectively is the pull mm. and then the history is essentially the push. So you can get a much, much greater jump. And so one of the reasons why, the, fun, the fundamental reason why I set up Fisher Farms was that as I looked at the past and could see a huge amount of conflict and strife related to resource scarcity, and if we looked in a world where we are today, where you've got less water, less arable land, increased middle-class demand, increased population, you've got a supply a demand going up and a supply going down issue. And as a result of that, if you can't figure out how to fill that gap, there's going to be a lot of pain and a lot of turmoil in the world. And so Fisher Farms is all about creating a solution whereby if all of those things are taking place, we can actually build infrastructure which allows us to actually feed everybody around the world. So this isn't a how can we feed people in Norfolk or the UK, but it's how do we actually have systems in place which actually can feed the entire world. Mm. And if you can do that, all of those historical problems which I've seen, which create misery and conflict and war, can be alleviated because fundamentally, if you can solve people's basic needs, people don't really want to get into conflict. No. People don't want, to, people don't fight unnecessarily. People fight when they're basically pushed into a corner. And there's no way out because the continent. You know, would I rather just sit at home and have a nice life or go and fight? Most people say I'd rather sit at home and have a nice life. Mm. The fighting is because they are stimulated to do something because sitting at home is so bad that they have to do something else. And so that really is the foundation of Fisher Farms, right. which is actually based off foundation of Asimov. That's amazing. <laughs> I, do you know when I pulled up outside this building? I did not expect that, but that makes such perfect sense. And what I think is fascinating is that yep. there was a really sniffy piece in Wired about, oh, fatal flaw in vertical farms, power, etc., energy. And, you know, that's just when it's at its scarcest because of the conflict in Ukraine. And now you look at the Red Sea and you're looking at ships not being able to access the Suez Canal because they don't want to get a missile inside. Yeah. And, you know, it's becoming steadily militarised and they're all going on a much longer journey with much greater environmental impact, cost, etc. And here you are turning out what people need on their doorsteps. Correct. Everything you've just said, you've met the moment, as it were. How do you kind of get your head around that, that kind of predictive side of what you do? You're, you're trying to sort of spare spare society pain on a, on a sort of grandiose level. You're trying to spare society pain and, and, and solve those problems before they become intractable and baked in to our everyday experience. And you're really trying hard to make it so that it's as pain-free as we can manage with the resources at hand. I started off my career predominantly doing renewable energy and things to do with climate change. And uh, I was still at university um, when I was doing uh, some research um, for a guy called Paul Hawken. And Paul Hawken wrote a really seminal book called Natural Capitalism. And in Natural Capitalism, he was one of the very early pioneers in thinking that we have to actually 
look after the environment in order for us to actually have an economy which is based off some kind of environmental requirements. But his view is that thinking about the environment as a charity act was never going to be a very good way of dealing with the environment because there's never enough charity available to deal with those kinds of issues. And his view is that if you really want to look after the environment, you actually have to create businesses which intrinsically make sense and therefore those businesses will succeed and therefore they will do more of what they were doing and therefore they do more of the good things that they were doing and therefore you come up with solutions and stuff like that. And that was really, really interesting because you know, for a long time the world was sort of split into you can be a goody two-shoes and make no money, have no real value and haven't really done anything or you can be you know, the sort of the, 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 the extreme version of capitalism, mm. you know, which was, you know, exploitative, exploiting people, exploiting the environment, exploiting nature, animals, or whatever it might be. And there was a sort of this, this you could do the one or the other. And Paul Hawkman said, no, 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 you actually can do both. And I think that was a really important lesson, and I think it's a really important lesson for, for everybody even today, that you know, there's a lot of people looking at the world and saying, well, you know, this is bad or this is good and you can't do the bad stuff and you should do the good stuff. But we're now in a world where there are a lot of businesses which do the good stuff and actually intrinsically good at the same time. You know, they are, so, so, for example, if you think about you know, how renewables, you know, solar projects and wind projects, you know, when I first started, there was almost nothing in terms of solar and wind, um, in terms of installed capacity. Uh, and you know, my first wind farm that I was involved in was it was in Tarifa in southern Spain. That was like ninety four, ninety five, or something like that. And yeah. you know, it was a Kenetech wind farm. And we have gone from there, the very, very, very earliest sort of wind farms, to now the combined output in Europe from wind and solar went from about zero percent of installed uh, of, of generated capacity about 20 years ago, to about 23% last year. And, you know, so from zero to 23% is really actually extremely impressive. Mm. And it's even more impressive when you think that that number, 23%, is more than nuclear, it's more than coal, it's more than natural gas, it's more than hydro on an individual basis. So as a combined, solar and wind, is actually the biggest, and that is just continuing to grow. And so that's a really good example so when I was thinking about Fisher Farms, it's like you can start from nothing and end up being 23% in a 20-odd year period of yeah. time. And so when I think about Fisher Farms, I think, well, you know, we're starting pretty much from nothing. And, and you know, for us to say, well, you know, yes, we're growing short leafy green things, our phase one crops like, you know, like the basil that you saw down on, yeah. the, on, the, on, the, on the floor below. But over time, we are going to be going to phase two crops, which are fruiters, and phase three crops, which are, are rice and wheat and soy and peas. And when you're starting to look at those, you're starting to realize that these are actually really meaningful food groups that we're producing. And yes, we'll be starting now, but in 20, 23 years' time, are we going to be in a situation where fisher farms and other vertical farms out there around the world will be able to be producing really significant amounts of food? And that amount of food will help um, bridge the gap between the increased demand over time and the yes. decreased supply over time. So it's going to really fill that gap in a meaningful way. And over time, the assumption would be that farms which 
today have been brought into production, but actually aren't really very good, not, not very good farmland at all, but, mm. you know, a bit, but because a lot of good farmland has been taken out. Uh, so if you look at um, you know, a, a lot of developing countries, some of those cities which were you know, 5,000 people 20 years ago, but are now 15 million people today, those towns and villages were built on places which actually had really good farmland, which is why the towns and villages there in the first place. But as their cities have expanded, they've expanded in some of the best land, yeah. arable land that they have, uh, because that's where the town was. So they have now put more and more agricultural production into really poor quality soil, where in a good year with the right amount of fertilizer and stuff like that, you can get a pretty good crop. But not many years are good years. And so mm. you'll frequently put a lot of, a lot of you know, fertilizers and extra water into the soil to get a good crop, but you still end up with a bad result. So those marginal bits of land, we think over time, can be put back into wilderness, can be rewilded as vertical farming expands, not just to fill the gap between what we would know we're going to need and yeah. where we know we're not going to have in terms mm. of production over time. They'll fill that gap and then start to eat into some of this really low quality land and allow that land to be actually brought back into the natural environment, which is, is, is important, not just it's not just important from a sort of humanity perspective, but it's that you know, as the number one sentient species on the planet, we have a responsibility for all of nature in the same way that as a parent, you know, you have full control and power over your children, but, you know, you want your children to, to thrive and to flourish and you want to give them as much as they can so they end up being you know, happy and, and, and rewarded individuals. And so we as humans need to be doing that with the natural world as well. We need to be thinking about this. Okay, we are the dominant species on the planet. That is not a license for us to abuse the weaker species. It is a license for us to actually be like a good parent mm. and actually look after um, nature. But at the moment, going back to what I was talking about earlier, about this conflict between bad stuff and good stuff, you know, frequently it was like, well, I kind of have to invade nature because I need to let land in order to be able to grow food, which I need, because if I don't grow that food, we're all going to starve. Yes. And so you were, you were in conflict. You were in an emotional conflict, because yet again, most people who come from you know, rural areas you know, who love the land and, and, and love their environment aren't deliberately going out to, being, to, to be destructive of the land. No. They're doing it because they're basically being forced to do that because of the circumstances they have. And so yet again, vertical farming helps address that part as well. So when I was thinking about setting up Fisher Farms, I was looking at it in the context of I have grown up looking at a whole range of new renewable energy, uh, clean energy technologies come on stream. Some have been incredibly successful, like wind and solar. Some have been complete failures. You know, so I was involved in uh, wave energy and tidal energy businesses as a director and investor. Mm. And that's a market where it didn't go anywhere. I know where I thought, well, no, it has this potential. No, the UK has got huge wave resource. It's got an incredible tidal resource. You know, it's a very de energy dense mix. And it sound, a lot of things sounded right, but actually there's a whole series of things which are fundamentally wrong about that. And so I've had a great opportunity throughout my career to actually see certain businesses doing very, very well and others not doing well and trying to learn 
what distinguishes between those ones which are have been successful and those ones which haven't been so successful, and, and maybe that they become more successful, but in a much much longer time frame um, than uh, than we than we've been looking at. But that gave me the confidence of setting up Fisher Farms that I was actually creating a, a, a new type of business, a new type of industry, but based on something which was grounded in the past, but yet again looking at the future. Yeah. I get the sense from you, you that you could have basically turned your your skills to any number of ways to solve the problems that you were sort of predicting almost and, and, and foreseeing. How did you hit on vertical farming as, as, as part of that solution? I um, was involved in a project with Bernard Matthews uh, a number of years ago. And we, my previous company, Lumicity, we installed biomass heating systems into their turkey stroke poultry sheds. Mm -hmm. And uh, we uh, uh, ended up uh, installing into 248 of their sheds, and we installed 179 biomass heating systems in order to be able to do that. And that was very interesting because this was a sort of this crossover point between the energy and the sort of you know, renewable energy area, which I'd been working in for you know, many, many, many years, and looking at food at the same time. And I was thinking to myself, well, what's interesting about a poultry shed is that it's essentially a closed environment for growing food. And uh, when we started to develop it, one of the things which was sort of a weird and unexpected side effect is that we realized that the chickens and the turkeys actually had a animal welfare benefit by moving into biomass heating compared to what they're currently doing, which is using propane gas. And, and the simple reason is that propane gas um, produces a huge amount of water vapor, uh, and the water vapor plus the urea in the uh, uh, chicken feces combines to create ammonia. Um, and ah. essentially, these poor birds are wandering around in a sort of ammonia vapor uh, along the bottom. And so that's why a lot of chickens will have... Uh, you know, loss of feathers uh, on their breasts when they sit down or on their hocks on their legs um, so they get burnt literally it's like a little nice sort of ammonia solution which they're basically swimming in um, which is really bad for the birds um, you know, it causes infections diseases which then you know, they have to be sort of looked after and stuff like that which also you know takes longer for them to grow and things like that whereas with the biomass heating system it produces a very dry heat with no water vapor mm. and no carbon monoxide uh, and carbon dioxide, which are the other two byproducts of, of, of using propane. And so it's a much healthier environment, it's a much drier environment, and actually the birds thrive in that. And so it was very interesting sort of looking at this and thinking, I, I was originally starting this was a pure uh, energy question to realizing mm. that there's an animal benefit and an animal, you know, essentially a yield benefit, that yes. birds grow faster because they're not ill. Yes. Uh, and... Um, and then I was thinking to myself, well, what else could I look at which was growing in a closed environment? And, and, and so uh, initially I spent all the time looking at aquaculture, so growing um, uh, fish on, in onshore, basically aquarium tanks. Yes. Um, and you know, I'm, I was very aware of the really significant degradation um, of the oceans as a result of overfishing. Um, overfishing is, you know, is, is one of these areas where you know, there's the, there's the quintessential tragedy of the commons, where everybody has access to it, 
And so you kind of want to get all the fish before anybody else takes all the fish, because once they take all the fish, there's no fish left for you. Yeah. And so fish stocks have absolutely collapsed uh, globally um, over the last uh, you know, really 20 years or 30 years, you know, almost every, every 10, 15 years drop, you think, oh my God, that's impossible. How on earth is going to drop so much? And then you know, 10 years later, you look back and think, wow, those are the golden yes, years. Yes, exactly. Where, yeah. you know, we had so <laughs> many fish there, and it sort of drops precipitously thereafter and stuff like that. So I spent a lot of time looking at aquaculture, um, and I became a director of a company uh, working on that. And that was, yet again, very, very interesting. We looked at prawn production and, and salmon production. Um, and then the other one which I looked at was vertical farming. Vertical farming, in many cases, is a very old technology and is also a very new technology. So it's an old technology in that people have been growing things hydroponically for actually a very, very long time. Uh, and uh, uh, as in literally for centuries. Um, yeah. But then what started to emerge uh, over the last uh, 20, 30 years was greenhouse grown uh, plants, you know, so things like tomatoes and bell peppers and cucumbers, essentially they are grown indoors in a hydroponic system. So they'll have a, a block of, of, of rock wool, they'll have water, nutrient was going into that block, um, which feeds the plant, the plant then grows and you get your tomatoes and your bell peppers. And people are doing that for a long time. Vertical farming is essentially hydroponics, but on shelves. Yes. Um, and the shelves create the verticality of it. So you basically want to get as many shelves as you possibly can using a hydroponic system. But clearly, if you have a shelf, it means that you can't use natural sunlight because the shelf then blocks the natural light exactly, between yeah. the layer below it. And so that's when artificial lights came in. Now, essentially, um, lights historically um, were too expensive, uh, too hot, uh, and use too much electricity to make growing products in a vertical setup uh, financially viable. Mm. Um, but there was one sector of the market where the numbers did work, and that was the cannabis industry. <laughs> yes. Um, and so a lot of the early vertical farming technology actually comes from, you know, cannabis growers in, you know, in the Netherlands and the United States and places like that where they were growing indoors because they were hiding from the police mm. um, and they'd use the hydroponic system that you were using from you know, growing bell peppers and cucumbers and so they're using water with a nutrient mix that would go into a block that the, you know, the cannabis plant would grow and they were using uh, uh, sodium lights which use a huge amount of energy and create a huge amount of heat but they didn't care because the product was so high value that they could really pay for anything. Mm. Um, and it got to such a ridiculous extent that places like the Netherlands, when I remember I used to live in Amsterdam, every so often you'd see these police raids um, and these cannabis plants be flying outside uh, the windows from these houses um, and dumped into the dumps in the street down below uh, where there's been a police raid. And what was going on is that um, the police would raid households who have a very small cannabis system. Uh, and what the government would do is said that if you uh, have only just gone into the cannabis industry, for i.e. you've been only growing for less than six months, we'll let you off with a small misdemeanor. And so what would happen is that these big cannabis growers would go to households and say, look, here are all the receipts for all the equipment for the cannabis. 
Um, so the lights, the um, the 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 the, the, mm -hmm. the, you know, the the water systems, the nutrient mixes, the fans and stuff like that. And we are going to give you all that equipment, and less than every six months, we're going to come in, chuck it all away, and give you some new kit with a new receipt. So if the police come at any moment in time, you can say, ah, oh, I've only just been growing this. Here are the receipts that yeah. I have for all the stuff that I've been doing recently. So the cannabis area was actually really interesting, but it was still too expensive uh, because for growing the kind of crops which Fisher Farms are growing, so the salads, leaves, and the basils, and the watercress, yes. and, and, and things like that, it was still too expensive from an energy perspective. So then what started to happen was that LED lights started to become a thing. Um, and so there was this big changeover you know, from your classic filament bulb, Edison-esque light bulb, yeah. um, uh, which was very hot uh, and used a lot of electricity, but pretty cheap, to LED lights, which at the time were expensive, but consumed very, very little uh, amount of electricity. And those LED lights have continued to evolve and evolve and evolve and evolve, and so they become cheaper to buy, so from a capital expenditure perspective, but have become increasingly efficient and also use very, very, produce very, very little heat. And it's, the heat is a really important part because if you're growing a plant inside and you have a very, very hot light, by the time you get close to the light, it becomes so hot that the plant cannot grow any further. Yeah. Uh, so by having a light which is very, very efficient and doesn't generate a lot of heat, the plant can actually get closer, and therefore you can really use the verticality. Yes. And so when Fisher Farms set up, we were really at the cusp of what was economically viable. So all the underlying technologies were there, but they hadn't been assembled in a way which we've been assembling, and they weren't at the price point which made it economically sensible to do. So effectively, when I realized that that was possible, then it started to think to myself, well, fish is fantastic. Protein, solving a protein is, is, really, really, is really important. But if you actually can grow the fundamentals of everything, which is actually the plants, which, yeah. you, know, you know, if you can grow wheat and uh, soy, you can actually feed, you can feed animals, ultimately, with that. Yes. Um, uh, so uh, that's when I thought to myself, you know what, I'm going to focus my attention on the vertical farming space, because the initial product that we're producing, you know, the, the salads and the herbs, I can actually grow them at a price point which is competitive today with field-grown yes. crops. Mm. So I didn't have to wait for a long period of time to be able to be economically viable. I could actually go ahead and sell them today at a price point which matches field-grown crops. And that was very different to what was going on when I first started in the renewable energy space, where essentially um, wind projects and solar projects were more expensive and worse quality than conventional power. Mm -hmm. you know, they were intermittent, so sometimes it's sunny, sometimes it wasn't, sometimes it was windy, sometimes it wasn't, versus a coal power station, which is just generating power all the way through, or a gas power station, which is generating power all the way through, you know, pretty much 365 days a year, 24 hours a day. So it was a more expensive, not very good, whereas in vertical farming, we are able to sell a product which, at a price point, is competitive with field-grown crops but it's significantly better than field-grown crops. Yes. Um, so you know, we grow 365 days of the year, whereas if you look at the products which we are growing, half of the year, you can't even grow them in the UK, and a number of the products, um, they don't grow in the UK at all. So yeah. you know, they're all imported. So we'll, you know, it's for us, we are 365 days a year versus 
a, a temporary imported types of products which are coming mm. out. Because you know, when, when we put our seed inside our, our tunnels, we are giving that seed everything that it wants to be a great plant. We give it the perfect amount of light. We give it the perfect amount of nutrient, the perfect amount of water, um, the right airflow. So we're giving the plant everything it possibly can be to be the best plant it can possibly be. Yes. And that's why we get consistently great product, mm. because we're literally giving it what it wants all the time, 365 days a year, which is in sharp contrast, where if you're planting a field where you can have a hot summer or a cold summer, you can have a wet summer or a dry summer, you can have soil which is uh, uh, really rich and fertile, or you can have soil which is really poor, uh, and infertile. And so we can provide this consistency yeah. that conventional field-grown crops can't get. And in many respects, it's almost like, imagine, you know, do you think that you'd end up with you know, building a computer or something like that in a field or you know, in an indoor closed environment where everything is actually all controlled? And so we are in a situation where we can give that plant it's a regular seed, it's not a GM seed or anything like that. It's literally the same type of seeds that they get in the field, but just looking after it a lot better than anybody else's. Yeah. It's just, it strikes me as a no-brainer, and it's quite interesting. Um, we are, we can just about hear in the, uh, out the window, kind of the, the storm issue, issue passing through. Um, and I was listening to the Today programme this morning, and they had, I believe it was in Northamptonshire, uh, a farmer standing in the field saying, well, I've lost... Uh, you know, 40% of my crop. It, the, the bottom of my field there was flooded in the last storm and it still hasn't drained. And it's even worse now. And, and, and it was, I thought, how serendipitous that I was coming here this afternoon because that sort of thing doesn't happen to you. It doesn't happen to... I mean, the, 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 the abundance that listeners can't see but I can see out the window there, uh, that, that you're completely insulated from that. That's not to say you don't have issues, as you say, power, um, but it's... That, that strikes me as being one of those issues that falls under the that's going to get solved yeah, category. That, yeah. that's, that's not intractable. That's thing that can be solved and will be solved. And what I don't want to come on to ask you is why Norfolk? Why this site? Why here? What, what, what drew you here? Was it special? Because special, the, the, it's a food enterprise so, zone. So, so, so it is absolutely because of the food enterprise zone. Um, so, you know, Farm One is based near Litchfield. Um, you know, so it's a good two and a half hours, three hours away. It's, it's not convenient to get to from farm one to, to farm two. And so the naturally we would have wanted to be in near Litchfield rather mm. than over here. Um, but when I found out that the Food Enterprise Zone existed, that became really intriguing because one of the issues you have about developing any kind of infrastructure is that you need to get planning. And planning is painful for multiple reasons. One is that it's expensive. Second, it's time-consuming. You know, it can take a whole year, and there's a whole bunch of studies and work and reports you need to do. But worst of all, having done all that work, you have no certainty of outcome that you're actually going to get planning on the place that you actually chose in the first place. Uh, and so by having a food enterprise zone in place where essentially we were allowed to build this building within the, the constraints of the Food Enterprise Zone's planning uh, envelope. It basically allowed us to go to the site and say, OK, this is where we're going to go. So there was no risk in terms of, is this the right place? Mm -hmm. 
we could get on with it straight away so we didn't have to wait 12 months to sort of figure out um, what it was going to be. And we knew what all the planning conditions were before we signed up rather than are we going to get planning at all. Yes. Um, and so it significantly reduced the risk and it became a very attractive location. Now, in addition to that, you know, this uh, location has um, you know, a, a very decent grid connection, um, although there are some issues yes, um, yes. associated with that. Um, and it's also a location where there's a lot of businesses which are in the neighborhood or institutions which are in the neighborhood, um, you know, like Eastern, like the John Innes Center and stuff like that, where we believe that over time there will be increasing amounts of collaboration which is possible between what we are doing and what they are doing. Because if you are a, if you are a research institute and you're growing certain types of crops, there's a certain amount what you can do inside the building and inside the greenhouse which you may have, but there comes a point where essentially you need to be able to expand. And one of the things which is very interesting about vertical farming is that we can create environments which are ideal for whatever it is that is being done. Um, and so one of the things, for example, which intrigued me um, about one of the possibilities of vertical farming is how vertical farming can assist conventional farming as we go through a climate change process. So, for example, if um, you know, the IPCC predicted that in 2050 in northwest India, the temperature was likely to be this and the humidity was like to be that, um, we could say, okay, we are going to build an environment in our farm, which is what the predicted climate is going to be, and let's grow some conventional crops in that tunnel, yes. see how they react to yes. that, and go, hmm, they're okay. Or, hmm, that's a major problem. There's something we need to do about that. We can actually... You know, what kind of crops do we need to um, uh, uh, breed and select for, which will allow us to deal with this particular type of environment as well? And so that's just one example. You know, there are other examples of things like you know, some pharmaceuticals which you could, uh, could, could use. So, you know, as you're probably aware, you know, tobacco is frequently used for not just growing, you know, plants for you know, cigarettes and cigars and stuff like that, but actually it can be used to create pharmaceutical um, ingredients um, or adjuvants, for example, which are needed um, for creating vaccines, yes. um, which basically stimulate the um, immune system to respond and, and, and therefore absorb whatever the vaccine, the, 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 the dead virus that you're actually getting inside the vaccine. So there are lots of things which you can see how vertical farming isn't just a food production center, but also has this ability for other things going on outside vertical farming itself and outside food. And so being in an area where there are other companies who are interested in this, I think is really, really interesting um, for uh, companies like Fisher Farms. I mean, you, you, we're really, really pleased that you're going to be playing a part in our uh, upcoming uh, Food Science Summit called Building the Norwich Food Science Supercluster, because we, I really believe that, like you, I, I'm full agreement with you, we have the parts, component parts here are something really, really exciting and special and interesting and unique. And I think there's just, we just need to discuss amongst, I want to encourage the discussions about how you, how do we take this further? How do we really uh, uh, increase the pace of collaboration and increase those conversations? I was just, because everyone's running their own organizations and, 
and very and incredibly busy. I'm just wondering, how would you like to see those collaborations sort of start to take shape, if, if indeed they aren't already? Collaboration is a complex. Yes. And it's very easy to get excited and say, OK, let's all collaborate. Um, but as you point out, everybody has their own specific things which they're actually supposed to be specifically doing themselves. Um, and I think that there is a, you know, there is a, there's a certain type of organisation which is sort of more on the sort of the research side, which has a, has a certain requirement to do certain things. And a lot of how they get funded is basically by producing another research report or you know, publishing in another, uh, another journal. And they, 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 there's a sort of sense of that's a bit of a progress or they've given some information over to the government. Um, but there isn't necessarily the connection with the commercial side or with the industry. And likewise, so, so what they want is actually slightly different from what a lot of industry wants. And likewise, industry, you know, their core function is to have income which exceeds all their expenses, um, make a profit to be able to reinvest that profit and to do more of what they were doing um, uh, as well. And so I think the, 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 the tricky part is how you connect essentially those two requirements which are slightly different and actually bridge that gap. Um, and you know, part of it is going to be um, uh, is, is, is people transfer and yes. knowledge yep. transfer. So you will have, you know, so Fisher Farms, you know, we have you know, agronomists and we have scientists and we have engineers and all that kind of stuff. And so I think you can go from that environment and then go into a commercial environment. So there's a, there's a, there's a movement of people. Um, and if you think about Silicon Valley um, uh, in the West Coast, a lot of these technology companies came out of university activities which you know, uh, were starting to collaborate or they realized that there was a need um, that they could see out there and then you'd have researchers who go, okay, well, I can see what this need is and I'm going to create a something and then might have a spin out of that particular something. Yes, yeah. Um, and then create their own independent um, entity in there. So I think the movement of people, um, I think, is a, a very important and an obvious one um, for, for, for that to be done. I think the, another part is where um, you can have companies or, 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 or researchers who are researching a particular a thing which has a very clear, ultimate commercial aim at the end of the day. And therefore, you can say, okay, to a, a, a commercial organization like Fisher Farms, you can say, okay, this is where we've got to. Now, we believe that if we grow this type of tobacco plant, um, we, with which we have, you know, we modify it, which allows us to create, you know, these kinds of really, really important pharmaceutical uh, drugs to deal with insulin, you know, or to deal with, you know, uh, uh, some sort of chronic illness or something like that. And they can say, well, this is actually something really, really interesting. We don't have the know-how how to actually build a large facility to grow this at scale, but you guys do. And, you know, we could work into some kind of collaboration whereby we have this fantastic product and we've spoken to, uh, you know, Pfizer, AstraZeneca or whoever it may be, and they said, yes, absolutely, there is a strong demand for this particular product. And we can actually go ahead and grow those things as well in, in some kind of collaboration. So I think, you know, the, the, there are ways of doing it. Um, uh, sometimes you'll get... You know, a vertical farm company will say, actually, we are looking for a certain type of seed, 
which will give us these kinds of characteristics because we think that um, that's, a very, that's a beneficial route for us. So, for example, Fisher Farms ultimately wants to be growing rice and wheat and soy and peas. Um, and we think that we're going to take 15, 10 to 15 years in order to be able to get to a price point which matches field-grown crops. Now, part of the price point is linked to improvements in the efficiency of the lights and improvements in the cost of electricity as more and more wind and solar comes on to online, electricity prices will go down as a result of that. But there's also, we could accelerate that process by having access to plants which were much better suited to a vertical farm situation. So, for example, if you imagine a, uh, a, 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 a rice plant or a wheat plant, in the field, it needs to survive certain conditions that are field-centric. So, for example, it needs to be strong enough to deal with a heavy wind or it needs to be strong enough to deal with rain or it needs to be strong enough to yes. deal with some predatory um, insect or mammal or something like that which would just loves to eat that particular product. Whereas if you're growing in a controlled environment like a vertical farm, our requirement could be, well, we have no wind problem to deal with, so you know, we don't have any rain problem to deal with, we don't have any infestations of rodents or whatever it might be, so we, we can actually grow a plant which is you know, really selected for hyper high yields and really short and stumpy. Now, we don't want a long, tall plant. We want a short plant with a really huge cob uh, on it, you know, just, just, you know, just, which in the normal environment would just, you know, you sort of blow on it and it would just immediately fall over because it just wasn't be strong enough. But in a vertical farm context where you don't get that kind of hostile yeah. environment, it can actually thrive really, really, really well. And that can mean that our yields will be much higher than you get even already with a vertical farm. Um, compared to what you can get out into uh, in, in a field. So that yetting would be a good example where you know, you know, the research side could actually really benefit um, organisations such as ourselves. I just think I'm, I'm, what intrigues me is the, the idea is that are there opportunities looking for funding and people? Are there people looking for funding and opportunities? Or is the funding looking for opportunities and people? Or is it all a combination of all of the above? And one of the things I want to, we're going to investigate uh, on the fourth panel... Uh, the first panel is going to be looking at sort of things like how do we encourage spin-outs, how do we encourage scale-ups, is there enough space, Can we, do we need more space, how do we get that space, etc. Do we need more of that funding competitions? Um, I mean, I know Cambridge have got something called, the they've set up something called the University Enterprise Zone. Now, what can we learn from that? I think it's about being brave and saying we don't know everything, but we can learn stuff, and what we can learn stuff we can build on, and what we build on we can really make something special out of. But what just to go back to what you're doing here, I don't know if bleeding edge is the right word, but you're kind of making up a new engineer system of engineering, a new sort of agronomy, science, whatever you want to call it, yeah. as you go. Yeah. And you are kind of solving problems that no one's had, or at least no one for, in living memory has had. We mustn't kind of let ourselves be, I think, be hostages to the past and accept that there's still going to be a role for traditional agriculture. But what you're doing here is ticking so many boxes, to use a terrible cliche, is addressing so many of the problems that we're going to face as a society, both in this country and globally. And what you said about sort of uh, mimicking an Indian climate in X years hence, it's absolutely fascinating. And I can think of many researchers. I know quite a lot of researchers at the John, in John Innes Centre and the, the Sainsbury Laboratory who would be absolutely... Wow, what a great idea. And, and I'm, that's why I'm so pleased they'll be here to see it, there to hear you talk in that second half about reflecting what you've heard and, and sort of setting a challenge for the second half. 
people who sort of dig into a problem like this just because it's there and because they feel that, like yourself, you clearly have a sense that you, you want to address these problems and it's kind of, it's re really kind of baked into who you are that you want to get to grips with these problems and, and find a solution. Not because you want them to be carried aloft through the streets of, of Litchfield and, 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 and here in Norfolk and be lauded, but because they need solving and someone's got to get on and do it. I think that, this, that what, you, what you mentioned is, I think, is a really important point, is that I think one of the real issues that we face today is this sense of a climate crisis that is greater than humanity's ability to solve. And I think that there are a lot of young people in particular who are constantly bombarded with climate doom. And climate doom is very unhealthy because it doesn't necessarily stir you into doing anything about it, but it leads to a level of despair that there is nothing that can be done about it. And I think that the despair part is really bad for young people's mental health. And I think that one of the things that Fisher Farms highlights is that it's not good enough to just be sad and get upset and protest march or block traffic, you know, like you know, we're having with uh, you know, the sort of the stop oil initiatives and stuff like that. You've actually got to do something about it yourself. You personally have to do something about it. And complaining isn't doing something about it. Doing Indeed. something about it is actually saying, I have a choice in my career. I could either do something which is doing something about the problem, or I could not do something about that problem. But I think you can't complain about it and not do something about it at the same time. Uh, and I think it's, you uh, know, uh, uh, so I think that what companies like Fisher Farms represent is the act of wanting to solve the problem rather than complain about it. And I think that's really important for young people in particular to pay attention to. Um, and I think it's, it's important also for, you know, many of us who are, you know, parents, uh, you know, to make sure that you know, when we go home in the evening, we can say, you know, I'm part of the solution. I'm really, really part of the solution. And I think that that is good for your kids. Uh, I think it's good for, you know, you as, a, as, a, as an adult individual um, uh, to actually lead that way rather than just complaining about things. I think it comes back to a point as well about, for me personally, about duty. Uh, it's, a, it's a word that's kind of fallen out of use, but I think words like stewardship and duty and responsibility, they're not onerous words. To have a feel of duty towards something, I think, is not a bad thing. It's a good thing. I agree. You've really eloquently summed the whole thing up. I can't, I can't top that, so I shan't try. Um, Tristan Fisher, it's been absolutely fascinating listen, listening to you talk about uh, the huge passion that is evident in this building, in this place amongst these people for what you do. Thank you for what you do. Thank you for doing it here. And I'm looking forward to hearing and seeing much more from Fisher Farms in times to come. But one of the, that's what, one of the things I want to say is Eastern Promise has a very, as long as I'm doing it at least, has a very firm no-moan policy for exactly the reason complaining gets us nowhere. It actually turns people off, people who are part of the solution off. Let's find solutions. Let's work through solutions. Let's talk about what we can do together 
all separately to make things better. And for that, I thank you for, for, for coming on Eastern Promise today. It's been an absolute pleasure. Great. Thank you very much for your time. I appreciate it. It was such a pleasure to meet Tristan. What an amazingly thoughtful, animated, passionate guest. I'm really grateful to him and to Louise Atkinson for making the time to meet with me and tell me more about the Fisher Farm story. In 2023, the majority of listeners to this very podcast were in England. We also have listeners in Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland, but those three nations combined didn't come anywhere close to the number of listeners to this podcast in 2023 from the United States of America. Yes, we had listeners from all over America, but mainly from Oregon, Virginia and California. Now, someone out there is listening to this and I want to hear from you. Are you an expat? Are you someone who just chanced upon this podcast and really liked what you heard? Have you downloaded it by accident? I want to know more about why you're listening and what you're listening for. So please do get in touch. Mike Rigby at easternpromise.site. God save the King and God bless America. And now, this! Let's hobble along the cobbles as we take a quick constitutional along our region's most historic streets as we signpost you to this week's... Crowd Sorcery. Yes, crowd sorcery. Streets are all across our popular culture. On TV, we had Brookside, Shortland Street, Ripper Street, the streets of San Francisco, and of course, Coronation Street. Movies gave us the miracle of 34th Street, and Bruce Springsteen sang about the streets of Philadelphia. Uh, murmur, murmur, murmur whilst doing the E Street Shuffle, and Simon and Garfunkel were feeling groovy about lampposts in the 59th Bridge Street song. I'm delighted to say you've approached the east of England's historic streets and boulevards with the same love-laced whimsy. First up, Nabila Amin of Donald Insel Associates understood the assignment as she tells us more about Cambridge's most interesting avenues. Uh, Nabila says, for name... Laundress Lane, how sweet, despite the smelly, heavy load and cleaning toil. For character, All Saints Passage, it's quiet and leads to a lovely, quiet green space. And it has Jack's gelato. What more could you ask? Both in hashtag Cambridge Historic Street. 
From smooth, sweet gelato, it's only natural we switch to Adam Peed, talent and business development strategist at Inuti. He has a very definite vote for the home team. I'm going to put in a vote for West Norfolk, says Adam. I'm also going to bend the rules slightly. <sighs> and suggest a collection of streets between the Tuesday Marketplace and the Saturday Marketplace. There is some stunning historical architecture and some great coffee shops and restaurants. You will get a cracking view of it all if you run the Gear 10K in May or come down to the festival too in the summer. Or you can see it all in the personal history of David Copperfield. Well, I shall permit that bending of the rules, and there's plenty to watch there. Thank you, Adam. And now, from our very dear friends at Mills and Reeve comes Deborah Dawson, bridging legal solutions with new partnerships. Deborah says, Angel Hill in Bury St. Edmunds is my fave, Mike. We have the very special boutique Angel Hotel, great for food and cocktails. The Athenaeum, the Cathedral and Abbey Gardens, which are all gems of historical significance. Not to mention the lovely tea shops and fabulous restaurants on tap. I couldn't agree more, Deborah. Its history is laid out there from across so many centuries. A left field choice now from south of our region comes from Neil Griffin, inspirer of knowledgeable business support across the UK's leading provider of innovation spaces and business support director. Neil votes for the streets around Thorpe Ness where he grew up and, he says, are pretty special. Mock Tudor effect and you can go through the uplands and under the water tower to the country club. A quintessential choice next from Tom Abbott of Abbott Feudali Investments who suggests Elm Hill in Norwich asking, is Elm Hill diagonally? Tom, I think the real question is, is Diagon Alley actually Elm Hill? Yeah, think about that. Expelliarmus! Finally, friend of the show, Michelle Chambers, business development manager at Chaplin Farrant, has dug deep into her festive memory. Yes, I remember watching a Christmas film in 2020 called Jingle Jangle, featuring Elm Hill, says Michelle. Tombland is another charming, picturesque, historic area which was once the centre of Anglo-Saxon Norwich. Both streets feature such beautiful, notable architecture. All fabulous choices if you wish to wander, and I support you in that. Next week, you'll be joining us, I know you will, for episode 89 of the Eastern Promise podcast, as we continue to finally, I say finally, join the celebration of the technician commitment at the John Innes Conference Centre, including my <clears throat> rather starstruck interview with one of Norfolk's greatest science communicators, Professor Ben Garrod. Until then, let me thank Tristan Fisher and Louise Atkinson for the fascinating look into the future of food at Fisher Farms. My thanks also to the sage who knows his audio onions, Engineer 49. And lastly, thank you to you. I am delighted to have had your company. And whatever you want to say, please reach out and get in touch. You can get in contact with me by going to easternpromise.org.uk and clicking on the contact function. I'll receive any email that comes through there. 
I look forward to having your company again in seven short days' time. So until then, bye for now. To hear other episodes of the Eastern Promise podcast and to find out more about what we do, go to our website at easternpromise.org.uk. Podcasto Reductum Eastern Promise is a Priors Croft production in association with Mills and Reeve. Achieving more together.